Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 12 of The Layer of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter 12 The Chest Opened. Left alone in the turret room, Edgar Caswell carefully locked the door and hung a handkerchief over the keyhole. Next he inspected the windows, and saw that they were not overlooked from any angle of the main building. Then he carefully examined the trunk, going over it with a magnifying glass. He found it intact. The steel bands were flawless. The whole trunk was compact. After sitting opposite to it for some time, and the shades of evening began to melt into darkness, he gave up the task and went to his bedroom after locking the door of the turret-room behind him and taking away the key. He woke in the morning at daylight, and resumed his patient but unavailing study of the metal trunk. This he continued during the whole day, with the same result, humiliating disappointment, which overwrought his nerves and made his headache. The result of the long strain was seen later in the afternoon, when he sat locked within the turret-room, before the still-baffling trunk, distrait, listless, and yet agitated, sunk in a settled gloom. As the dusk was falling, he told the steward to send him two men, strong ones. These he ordered to take the trunk to his bedroom. In that room he then sat on into the night, without pausing even to take any food. His mind was in a whirl, a fever of excitement. The result was that when, late in the night, he locked himself in his room, his brain was full of odd fancies. He was on the high road to mental disturbance. He lay down on his bed, in the dark, still brooding over the mystery of the closed trunk. Gradually he yielded to the influences of silence and darkness. After laying there quietly for some time, his mind became active again. But this time there were round him no disturbing influences. His brain was active and able to work freely and to deal with memory. A thousand forgotten, or only half-known incidents, fragments of conversations or theories, long ago guessed at and long forgotten, crowded in his mind. He seemed to hear again round him the legions of whirring wings to which he had been so lately accustomed. Even to himself he knew that that was an effort of imagination founded on imperfect memory but he was content that imagination should work, for out of it might come some solution of the mystery which surrounded him. And in this frame of mind, sleep made another and more successful essay. This time he enjoyed peaceful slumber, restful alike to his wearied body and his overwrought brain. In his sleep he arose, and, as if in obedience to some influence beyond the greater than himself, lifted the great trunk, and set it on a strong table at one end of the room, from which he had previously removed a quantity of books. To do this, he had to use an amount of strength which was, he knew, far beyond him in his normal state. As it was, 
it seemed easy enough. Everything yielded before his touch. Then he became conscious that somehow—how he never could remember—the chest was open. He unlocked his door, and, taking the chest on his shoulder, carried it up to the turret-room, the door of which also he unlocked. Even at the time he was amazed at his own strength, and wondered whence it had come. His mind, lost in conjecture, was too far off to realize more immediate things. He knew that the chest was enormously heavy. He seemed, in a sort of vision which lit up the absolute blackness around, to see the two sturdy servant-men staggering under its great weight. He locked himself again in the turret-room and laid the opened chest on a table, and in the darkness began to unpack it, laying out the contents, which were mainly of metal and glass, great pieces in strange forms, on another table. He was conscious of being still asleep, and of acting rather in obedience to some unseen and unknown command than in accordance with any reasonable plan, to be followed by results which he understood. This phase completed, he proceeded to arrange in order the component parts of some large instruments, formed mostly of glass. His fingers seemed to have acquired a new and exquisite subtlety and even a volition of their own. Then weariness of brain came upon him, his head sunk down on his breast, and little by little everything became wrapped in gloom. He awoke in the early morning in his bedroom, and looked around him, now clear-headed in amazement. In its usual place on the strong table stood the great steel-hooped chest, without lock or key. But it was now locked. He arose quietly and stole to the turret-room. There everything was as it had been on the previous evening. He looked out of the window, where high in air flew, as usual, the giant kite. He unlocked the wicket gate of the turret stair and went out on the roof. Close to him was the great coil of cord on its reel. It was humming in the morning breeze, and when he touched the string it sent a quick thrill through his hand and arm. There was no sign anywhere that there had been any disturbance or displacement of anything during the night. Utterly bewildered, he sat down in his room to think. Now for the first time he felt that he was asleep and dreaming. Presently he fell asleep again and slept for a long time. He awoke hungry and made a hearty meal. Then towards evening, having locked himself in, he fell asleep again. When he woke he was in darkness and was quite at sea as to his whereabouts. He began feeling about the dark room, and was recalled to the consequences of his position by the breaking of a large piece of glass. Having obtained a light, he discovered this to be a glass wheel, part of an elaborate piece of mechanism, which he must in his sleep have taken from the chest, which was now opened. He had once again opened it while asleep, but he had no recollection of the circumstances. Caswell came to the conclusion that there had been some sort of dual action of his mind, which might lead to some catastrophe or some discovery of his secret plans, so he resolved to forego for a while the pleasure of making discoveries regarding the chest. To this end he applied himself to quite another matter, an investigation of the other treasures and rare objects in his collections. He went amongst them in simple idle curiosity, 
his main object being to discover some strange item which he might use for experiment with the kite. He had already resolved to try some runners other than those made of paper. He had a vague idea that with such a force as the great kite straining at its leash, this might be used to lift to the altitude of the kite itself heavier articles. His first experiment, with articles of little but increasing weight, was eminently successful. So he added by degrees more and more weight, until he found out that the lifting power of the kite was considerable. He then determined to take a step further, and send to the kite some of the articles which lay in the steel-hooped chest. The last time he had opened it in sleep, it had not been shut again, and he had inserted a wedge so that he could open it at will. He made examination of the contents, but came to the conclusion that the glass objects were unsuitable. They were too light for testing weight, and they were so frail as to be dangerous to send to such a height. So he looked around for something more solid with which to experiment. His eye caught sight of an object which at once attracted him. This was a small copy of one of the ancient Egyptian gods, that of Bess, who represented the destructive power of nature. It was so bizarre and mysterious as to commend itself to his mad humor. In lifting it from the cabinet, he was struck by its great weight in proportion to its size. He made accurate examination of it by the aid of some instruments, and came to the conclusion that it was carved from a lump of lodestone. He remembered that he had read somewhere of an ancient Egyptian god cut from a similar substance, and thinking it over, he came to the conclusion that he must have read it in Sir Thomas Brown's Popular Errors, a book of the seventeenth century. He got the book from the library and looked out the passage. A great example we have from the observation of our learned friend, Mr. Graves, in an Egyptian idol cut out of lodestone and found among the mummies, which still retains its attraction, though probably taken out of the mine about two thousand years ago. The strangeness of the figure, and its being so close akin to his own nature, attracted him. He made from thin wood a large circular runner, and in front of it placed the weighty god, sending it up to the flying kite along the throbbing cord. End of chapter 12 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen of *The Layer of the White Worm* by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Thirteen: Ulanga's Hallucinations. During the last few days, Lady Arabella had been getting exceedingly impatient. Her debts, always pressing, were growing to an embarrassing amount. The only hope she had of comfort in life was a good marriage. But the good marriage on which she had fixed her eye did not seem to move quickly enough. Indeed, it did not seem to move at all in the right direction. Edgar Caswell was not an ardent wooer. From the very first he seemed difficile, but he had been keeping to his own room ever since his struggle with Mimi Watford. On that occasion Lady Arabella had shown him in an unmistakable way what her feelings were. Indeed, she had made it known to him in a more overt way than pride should allow that she wished to help and support him the moment when she had gone across the room to stand beside him in his mesmeric struggle 
had been the very limit of her voluntary action. It was quite bitter enough, she felt, that he did not come to her. But now that she had made that advance, she felt that any withdrawal on his part would, to a woman of her class, be nothing less than a flaming insult. Had she not classed herself with his nigger-servant, an unreformed savage? Had she not shown her preference for him at the festival of his homecoming? Had she not— Lady Arabella was cold-blooded, and she was prepared to go through all that might be necessary of indifference and even insult to become chatelaine of Castra Regis. In the meantime, she would show no hurry. She must wait. She might, in an unostentatious way, come to him again. She knew him now, and could make a keen guess at his desires with regard to Lilla Watford. With that secret in her possession, she could bring pressure to bear on Caswell, which would make it no easy matter for him to evade her. The great difficulty was how to get near him. He was shut up within his castle, and guarded by a defense of convention, which she could not pass without danger of ill repute to herself. Over this question she thought and thought for days and nights. At last she decided that the only way would be to go to him openly at Castra Regis. Her rank and position would make such a thing possible, if carefully done. She could explain matters afterwards if necessary. Then, when they were alone, she would use her art and her experience to make him commit himself. After all, he was only a man, with a man's dislike of difficult or awkward situations. She felt quite sufficient confidence in her own womanhood to carry her through any difficulty which might arise. From Diana's grove she heard each day the luncheon gong from Castra Regis sound, and knew the hour when the servants would be in the back of the house. She would enter the house at that hour, and, pretending that she could not make anyone hear her, would seek him in his own rooms. The tower was, she knew, away from all the usual sounds of the house, and, moreover, she knew that the servants had strict orders not to interrupt him when he was in the turret's chamber. She had found out, partly by the aid of an opera-glass, and partly by judicious questioning, that several times lately a heavy chest had been carried to and from his room, and that it rested in the room each night. She was, therefore, confident that he had some important work on hand, which would keep him busy for long spells. Meanwhile, another member of the household at Castra Regis had schemes which he thought were working to fruition. A man in the position of a servant has plenty of opportunities of watching his betters and forming opinions regarding them. Ulanga was in his way a clever, unscrupulous rogue, and he felt that with things moving round him in this great household there should be opportunities of self-advancement. Being unscrupulous and stealthy, and a savage, he looked to dishonest means. He saw plainly enough that Lady Arabella was making a dead set at his master, and he was watchful of the slightest sign of anything which might enhance this knowledge. Like the other men in the house, he knew of the carrying to and fro of the great chest, and had got it into his head that the care exercised in its porterage indicated that it was full of treasure. He was forever lurking around the turret-rooms on the chance of making some useful discovery. But he was as cautious as he was stealthy, and took care that no one else watched him. 
it was thus that the negro became aware of lady arabella's venture into the house as she thought unseen he took more care than ever since he was watching another that the positions were not reversed more than ever he kept his eyes and ears open and his mouth shut seeing lady arabella gliding up the stairs towards his master's room he took it for granted that she was there for no good and doubled his watching intentness and caution ulanga was disappointed but he dared not exhibit any feeling lest it should betray that he was hiding therefore he slunk downstairs again noiselessly and waited for a more favorable opportunity of furthering his plans it must be borne in mind that he thought that the heavy trunk was full of valuables and that he believed that lady arabella had come to try to steal it his purpose of using for his own advantage the combination of these two ideas was seen later in the day ulanga secretly followed her home he was an expert at this game and succeeded admirably on this occasion he watched her enter the private gate of diana's grove and then taking a roundabout course and keeping out of her sight he at last overtook her in a thick part of the grove where no one could see the meeting lady arabella was much surprised she had not seen the negro for several days and had almost forgotten his existence ulanga would have been startled had he known and been capable of understanding the real value placed on him his beauty his worthiness by other persons and compared it with the value in these matters in which he held himself doubtless ulanga had his dreams like other men in such cases he saw himself as a young sun-god as beautiful as the eye of dusky or even white womanhood had ever dwelt upon he would have been filled with all noble and captivating qualities or those regarded as such in west africa women would have loved him and would have told him so in the overt and fervid manner usual in affairs of the heart in the shadowy depths of the forest of the gold coast ulanga came close behind lady arabella and in a hushed voice suitable to the importance of his task and in deference to the respect he had for her and the place and began to unfold the story of his love lady arabella was not usually a humorous person but no man or woman of the white race could have checked the laughter which rose spontaneously to her lips the circumstances were too grotesque the contrast too violent for subdued mirth the man a debased specimen of one of the most primitive races of the earth and of an ugliness which was simply devilish the woman of high degree beautiful accomplished she thought that her first moment's consideration of the outrage it was nothing less in her eyes had given her the full material for thought but every instant after threw new and varied lights on the affront her indignation was too great for passion only irony or satire would meet the situation her cold cruel nature helped and she did not shrink to subject this ignorant savage to the merciless fire-lash of her scorn ulanga was dimly conscious that he was being flouted but his anger was no less keen because of the measure of his ignorance so he gave way to it as does a tortured beast he ground his great teeth together raved stamped and swore in barbarous tongues and with barbarous imagery even lady arabella felt that it was well she was within reach of help or he might have offered her brutal violence even have killed her 
"'Am I to understand,' she said with cold disdain, so much more effective to wound than hot passion, "'that you are offering me your love, your love?' For reply he nodded his head. The scorn of her voice, in a sort of baleful hiss, sounded and felt like the lash of a whip. "'And you dared, you, a savage, a slave, the basest thing in the world of vermin. Take care. I don't value your worthless life more than I do that of a rat or a spider. Don't let me ever see your hideous face here again, or I shall rid the earth of you.' As she was speaking, she had taken out her revolver, and was pointing it at him. In the immediate presence of death, his impudence forsook him, and he made a weak effort to justify himself. His speech was short, consisting of single words. To Lady Arabella it sounded more gibberish, but it was in his own dialect, and meant love, marriage, wife. From the intonation of the words she guessed, with her woman's quick intuition, at their meaning but she quite failed to follow when, becoming more pressing, he continued to urge his suit in a mixture of the grossest animal passion and ridiculous threats. He warned her that he knew she had tried to steal his master's treasure, and that he had caught her in the act. But if she would be his, he would share the treasure with her, and they could live in luxury in the African forests. But if she refused, he would tell his master, who would flog and torture her, and then give her to the police who would kill her. End of chapter 13 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush Chapter 14 Battle Renewed the consequences of that meeting in the dusk of Diana's Grove were acute and far-reaching, not only to the two engaged in it. From Ulanga this might have been expected by anyone who knew the character of the tropical African savage. To such there are two passions that are inexhaustible and insatiable, vanity and that which they are pleased to call love. Ulanga left the grove with an absorbing hatred in his heart, his lust and greed were afire, while his vanity had been wounded to the core. Lady Arabella's icy nature was not so deeply stirred, though she was in a seething passion. More than ever she was set upon bringing Edgar Caswell to her feet. The obstacles she had encountered, the insults she had endured, were only as fuel to the purpose of revenge which consumed her. As she sought her own rooms in Diana's Grove, she went over the whole subject again and again, always finding in the face of Lilla Watford a key to a problem which puzzled her, the problem of a way to turn Caswell's powers, his very existence, to aid her purpose. When in her boudoir she wrote a note, taking so much trouble over it, that she destroyed and rewrote, till her dainty waste-basket was half full of torn sheets of note-paper. When quite satisfied, she copied out the last sheet afresh, and then carefully burned all the spoiled fragments. She put copied note in an emblazoned envelope, and directed it to Edgar Caswell at Castra Regis. This she sent off by one of her grooms. The letter ran, Dear Mr. Caswell, I want to have a chat with you on a subject in which I believe you are interested. 
Will you kindly call for me one day after lunch, say at three or four o'clock, and we can walk a little way together? Only as far as Mercy Farm, where I want to see Lilla and Mimi Watford. We can take a cup of tea at the farm. Do not bring your African servant with you, as I am afraid his face frightens the girls. After all, he is not pretty, is he? I have an idea you will be pleased with your visit this time. Yours sincerely, Arabella March. At half-past three next day, Edgar Caswell called at Diana's Grove. Lady Arabella met him on the roadway outside the gate. She wished to take the servants into her confidence as little as possible. She turned when she saw him coming, and walked beside him towards Mercy Farm, keeping step with him as they walked. When they got near Mercy, she turned and looked around her, expecting to see Ulanga or some sign of him. He was, however, not visible. He had received from his master peremptory orders to keep out of sight, an order for which the African scored a new offence up against her. They found Lilla and Mimi at home, and seemingly glad to see them, though both the girls were surprised at the visit coming so soon after the other. The proceedings were a repetition of the battle of souls of the former visit. On this occasion, however, Edgar Caswell had only the presence of Lady Arabella to support him, Ulanga being absent, but Mimi lacked the support of Adam Salton, which had been of such effective service before. This time the struggle for supremacy of will was longer and more determined. Caswell felt that if he could not achieve supremacy, he had better give up the idea, so all his pride was enlisted against Mimi. When they had been waiting for the door to be opened, Lady Arabella, believing in a sudden attack, had said to him in a low voice, which somehow carried conviction, "'This time you should win. Mimi is, after all, only a woman. Show her no mercy. That is weakness. Fight her, beat her, trample on her, kill her if need be. She stands in your way, and I hate her. Never take your eyes off her. Never mind, Lilla, she is afraid of you.' You are already her master. Mimi will try to make you look at her cousin. There lies defeat. Let nothing take your attention from Mimi, and you will win. If she is overcoming you, take my hand and hold it hard whilst you are looking into her eyes. If she is too strong for you, I shall interfere. I'll make a diversion. And under cover of it, you must retire unbeaten, even if not victorious. Ush, they are coming. The two girls came to the door together. Strange sounds were coming up over the brow from the west. It was the rustling and crackling of the dry reeds and rushes from the lowlands. The season had been an unusually dry one. Also, the strong east wind was helping forward enormous flocks of birds, most of them pigeons with white cowls. Not only were their wings whirring, but their cooing was plainly audible. From such a multitude of birds the mass of sound, individually small, assumed the volume of a storm. Surprised at the influx of birds, to which they had been strangers so long, they all looked towards Castor Regis, from whose high tower the great kite had been flying as usual. But even as they looked, the cord broke, and the great kite fell headlong in a series of sweeping dives. Its own weight, 
and the aerial force opposed to it, which caused it to rise, combined with a strong easterly breeze, had been too much for the great length of cord holding it. Somehow the mishap to the kite gave new hope to Mimi. It was as though the side issues had been shorn away, so that the main struggle was thenceforth on simpler lines. She had a feeling in her heart, as though some religious cord had been newly touched. It may, of course, have been that with the renewal of the bird-voices a fresh courage, a fresh belief in the good issue of the struggle came too. In the misery of silence, from which they had all suffered for so long, any new train of thought was almost bound to be a boon. As the inrush of birds continued, their wings beating against the crackling rushes, Lady Arabella grew pale and almost fainted. "'What is that?' she asked suddenly. To Mimi, born and bred in Siam, the sound was strangely like an exaggeration of the sound produced by a snake-charmer. Edgar Caswell was the first to recover from the interruption of the falling kite. After a few minutes he seemed to have quite recovered his sang-froid, and was able to use his brains to the end which he had in view. Mimi, too, quickly recovered herself, but from a different cause. With her it was a deep religious conviction that the struggle round her was of the powers of good and evil, and that good was triumphing. The very appearance of the snowy birds with the cowls of St. Columba heightened the impression. With this conviction strong upon her, she continued the strange battle with fresh vigor. She seemed to tower over Caswell, and he to give back before her oncoming. Once again her vigorous passes drove him to the door. He was just going out backward when Lady Arabella, who had been gazing at him with fixed eyes, caught his hand and tried to stop his movement. She was, however, unable to do any good, and so, holding hands, they passed out together. As they did so, the strange music which had so alarmed Lady Arabella suddenly stopped. Instinctively they all looked towards the tower of Castor Regis, and saw that the workmen had refixed the kite, which had risen again and was beginning to float out to its former station. As they were looking the door opened, and Michael Watford came into the room. By that time all had recovered their self-possession, and there was nothing out of the common to attract his attention. As he came in, seeing inquiring looks all around him, he said, "'The new influx of birds is only the annual migration of pigeons from Africa. I am told that it will soon be over.' The second victory of Mimi Watford made Edgar Caswell more moody than ever. He felt thrown back on himself, and this, added to his absorbing interest in the hope of a victory of his mesmeric powers, became a deep and settled purpose of revenge. The chief object of his animosity was, of course, Mimi, whose will had overcome his, but it was obscured in a greater or lesser degree by all who had opposed him. Lilla was next to Mimi in his hate. Lilla, the harmless, tender-hearted, sweet-natured girl, whose heart was so full of love for all things that in it was no room for the passions of ordinary life, whose nature resembled those doves of St. Columba, whose color she wore, whose appearance she reflected. Adam Salton came next, after a gap, for against him Caswell had no direct animosity. 
he regarded him as an interference, a difficulty to be got rid of or destroyed. The young Australian had been so discreet that the most he had against him was his knowledge of what had been. Caswell did not understand him, and to such a nature as his ignorance was a cause of alarm, of dread. Caswell resumed his habit of watching the great kite, straining at its cord, varying his vigils in this way by a further examination of the mysterious treasures of his house, especially Mesmer's chest. He sat much on the roof of the tower, brooding over his thwarted passion, the vast extent of his possessions, visible to him at that altitude, might, one would have thought, have restored some of his complacency. But the very extent of his ownership, thus perpetually brought before him, created a fresh sense of grievance. How was it, he thought, that with so much at command that others wished for, he could not achieve the dearest wishes of his heart? In this state of intellectual and moral depravity, he found a solace in the renewal of his experiments with the mechanical powers of the kite. For a couple of weeks he did not see Lady Arabella, who was always on the watch for a chance of meeting him. Neither did he see the Watford girls, who studiously kept out of his way. Adam Sultan simply marked time, keeping ready to deal with anything that might affect his friends. He called at the farm and heard from Mimi of the last battle of wills, but it had only one consequence. He got from Ross several more mongooses, including a second King Cobra killer, which he generally carried with him in its box whenever he walked out. Mr. Coswell's experiments with the kite went on successfully. Each day he tried the lifting of greater weight, and it seemed almost as if the machine had a sentience of its own, which was increasing with the obstacles placed before it. All this time the kite hung in the sky at an enormous height. The wind was steadily from the north, so the trend of the kite was to the south. All day long runners of increasing magnitude were sent up. These were only of paper or thin cardboard or leather or other flexible materials. The great height at which the kite hung made a great concave curve in the string, so that as the runners went up they made a flapping sound. If one laid a finger on the string, the sound answered to the flapping of the runner in a sort of hollow, intermittent murmur. Edgar Caswell, who was now wholly obsessed by the kite and all belonging to it, found a distinct resemblance between that intermittent rumble and the snake-charming music produced by the pigeons flying through the dry reeds. One day he made a discovery in Mesmer's chest, which he thought he would utilize with regard to the runners. This was a great length of wire, fine as human hair, coiled round a finely made wheel, which ran to a wondrous distance freely and as lightly. He tried this on runners, and found it work admirably. Whether the runner was alone, or carried something more weighty than itself, it worked equally well. Also it was strong enough and light enough to draw back the runner without undue strain. He tried this a good many times successfully, but it was now growing dusk, and he found some difficulty in keeping the runner in sight. So he looked for something heavy enough to keep it still. He placed the Egyptian image of Bess on the fine wire, which crossed the wooden ledge which protected it. Then, the darkness growing, he went indoors and forgot all about it. He had a strange feeling of uneasiness that night, 
not sleeplessness, for he seemed conscious of being asleep. At daylight he rose, and as usual looked out for the kite. He did not see it in its usual position in the sky, so looked round the points of the compass. He was more than astonished when presently he saw the missing kite struggling as usual against the controlling cord. But it had gone to the further side of the tower, and now hung and strained against the wind to the north. He thought it so strange that he determined to investigate the phenomenon, and to say nothing about it in the meantime. In his many travels Edgar Coswell had been accustomed to use the sextant, and was now an expert in the matter. By the aid of this and other instruments he was able to fix the position of the kite and the point over which it hung. He was startled to find that exactly under it, so far as he could ascertain, was Diana's grove. He had an inclination to take Lady Arabella into his confidence in the matter, but he thought better of it, and wisely refrained. For some reason, which he did not try to explain to himself, he was glad of his silence, when, on the following morning, he found, on looking out, that the point over which the kite then hovered was Mercy Farm. When he had verified this with his instruments, he sat before the window of the tower, looking out and thinking. The new locality was more to his liking than the other, but the why of it puzzled him all the same. He spent the rest of the day in the turret-room, which he did not leave all day. It seemed to him that he was now drawn by forces which he could not control, of which indeed he had no knowledge, in directions which he did not understand, and which were without his own volition. In sheer helpless inability to think the problem out satisfactorily, he called up a servant, and told him to tell Ulanga that he wanted to see him at once in the turret-room. The answer came back that the African had not been seen since the previous evening. Caswell was now so irritable that even this small thing upset him. As he was distrait and wanted to talk to somebody, he sent for Simon Chester, who came at once, breathless with hurrying and upset by the unexpected summons. Caswell bade him sit down, and when the old man was in a less uneasy frame of mind, he again asked him if he had ever seen what was in Mismer's chest, or heard it spoken about. Chester admitted that he had once, in the time of the then Mr. Edgar, seen the chest open, which, knowing something of its history and guessing more, so upset him that he had fainted. When he recovered, the chest was closed. From that time, the then Mr. Edgar had never spoken about it again. When Mr. Caswell asked him to describe what he had seen when the chest was open, he got very agitated, and despite all his efforts to remain calm, he suddenly went off into a faint. Caswell summoned servants, who applied the usual remedies. Still, the old man did not recover. After the lapse of a considerable time, the doctor who had been summoned made his appearance. A glance was sufficient for him to make up his mind. Still, he knelt down by the old man, and made a careful examination. Then he rose to his feet, and in a hushed voice said, I grieve to say, sir, that he has passed away. End of chapter 14 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. 
Chapter Fifteen On the Track. For those who had seen Edgar Coswell familiarly since his arrival, and had already estimated his cold-blooded nature as something of its true value, were surprised that he took so to heart the death of old Chester. The fact was that not one of them had guessed correctly at his character. They thought, naturally enough, that the concern which he felt was that of a master for a faithful old servant of his family. They little thought that it was merely the selfish expression of his disappointment, that he had thus lost the only remaining clue to an interesting piece of family history, one which was now and would be forever wrapped in mystery. Caswell knew enough about the life of his ancestor in Paris to wish to know more fully and more thoroughly all that had been. The period covered by that ancestor's life in Paris was one inviting every form of curiosity. Lady Arabella, who had her own game to play, saw in the metier of sympathetic friend a series of meetings with the man she wanted to secure. She made the first use of the opportunity the day after old Chester's death. Indeed, as soon as the news had filtered in through the back door of Diana's Grove. At that meeting she played her part so well that even Caswell's cold nature was impressed. Ulanga was the only one who did not credit her with at least some sense of fine feeling in the matter. In emotional, as in other matters, Ulanga was distinctly a utilitarian, and as he could not understand anyone feeling grief except for his own suffering, pain, or for the loss of money, he could not understand anyone simulating such an emotion except for show intended to deceive. He thought that she had come to Castra Regis again for the opportunity of stealing something, and was determined that on this occasion the chance of pressing his advantage over her should not pass. He felt, therefore, that the occasion was one for extra carefulness in the watching of all that went on. Ever since he had come to the conclusion that Lady Arabella was trying to steal the treasure-chest, he suspected nearly every one of the same design and made it a point to watch all suspicious persons and places. As Adam was engaged on his own researches regarding Lady Arabella, it was only natural that there should be some crossing of each other's tracks. This is what did actually happen. Adam had gone for an early morning survey of the place in which he was interested, taking with him the mongoose in its box. He arrived at the gate of Diana's Grove just as Lady Arabella was preparing to set out for Castra Regis on what she considered her mission of comfort. Seeing Adam from her window going through the shadows of the trees round the gate, she thought that he must be engaged on some purpose similar to her own. So, quickly making her toilet, she quietly left the house, and taking advantage of every shadow and substance which could hide her, followed him on his walk. Ulanga, the experienced tracker, followed her, but succeeded in hiding his movements better than she did. He saw that Adam had on his shoulder a mysterious box, which he took to contain something valuable. Seeing that Lady Arabella was secretly following Adam, he was confirmed in this idea. His mind, such as it was, was fixed on her trying to steal, and he credited her at once with making use of this new opportunity. In his walk, Adam went into the grounds of Castor Regis, and Ulanga saw her follow him with great secrecy. 
he feared to go closer, as now on both sides of him were enemies who might make discovery. When he realized that Lady Arabella was bound for the castle, he devoted himself to following her with singleness of purpose. He therefore missed seeing that Adam branched off the track and returned to the high road. That night Edgar Coswell had slept badly. The tragic occurrence of the day was on his mind, and he kept waking and thinking of it. After an early breakfast, he sat at the open window watching the kite and thinking of many things. From his room he could see all round the neighborhood, but the two places that interested him most were Mercy Farm and Diana's Grove. At first the movements about those spots were of a humble kind, those that belonged to domestic service or agricultural needs. The opening of doors and windows, the sweeping and brushing, and generally the restoration of habitual order. From his high window, whose height made it a screen from the observation of others, he saw the chain of watchers move into his own grounds, and then presently break up, Adam Salton going one way, and Lady Arabella followed by the nigger another. Then Ulanga disappeared amongst the trees, but Caswell could see that he was still watching. Lady Arabella, after looking around her, slipped in by the open gate, and he could, of course, see her no longer. Presently, however, he heard a light tap at his door. Then the door opened slowly, and he could see the flash of Lady Arabella's white dress through the opening. End of chapter 15 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen of *The Lair of the White Worm* by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Sixteen: A Visit of Sympathy. Caswell was genuinely surprised when he saw Lady Arabella, though he need not have been after what had already occurred in the same way. The look of surprise on his face was so much greater than Lady Arabella had expected though she thought she was prepared to meet anything that might occur, that she stood still in sheer amazement. Cold-blooded as she was, and ready for all social emergencies, she was nonplussed how to go on. She was plucky, however, and began to speak at once, although she had not the slightest idea what she was going to say. "'I came to offer you my very warm sympathy with the grief you have so lately experienced.' my grief i'm afraid i must be very dull but i really do not understand already she felt at a disadvantage and hesitated i mean about the old man who died so suddenly your old retainer caswell's face relaxed something of its puzzled concentration oh he was only a servant and he had overstayed his three score and ten years by something like twenty years he must have been ninety still as an old servant caswell's words were not so cold as their inflection i never interfere with servants he was kept on here merely because he had been so long in the premises i suppose the steward thought it might make him unpopular if the old fellow had been dismissed how on earth was she to proceed on such a task as hers if this was the utmost geniality she could expect so she at once tried another tack this time a personal one I am sorry I disturbed you. I am really not unconventional. 
though certainly no slave to convention. Still, there are limits. It is bad enough to intrude in this way, and I do not know what you can say or think of the time selected for the intrusion. After all, Edgar Caswell was a gentleman by custom and habit, so he rose to the occasion. "'I can only say, Lady Arabella, that you are always welcome at any time you may deign to honour my house with your presence.' She smiled at him sweetly. "'Thank you so much. You do put one at ease. My breach of convention makes me glad rather than sorry. I feel that I can open my heart to you about anything.' Forthwith she proceeded to tell him about Ulanga and his strange suspicions of her honesty. Caswell laughed, and made her explain all the details. His final comment was enlightening. "'Let me give you a word of advice. If you have the slightest fault to find with that infernal nigger, shoot him at sight. A swelled head nigger, with a bee in his bonnet, is one of the worst difficulties in the world to deal with. So better make a clean job of it, and wipe him out at once.' "'But what about the law, Mr. Caswell?' "'Oh, the law doesn't concern itself much about dead niggers. A few more or less do not matter. To my mind it's rather a relief.' "'I'm afraid of you,' was her only comment, made with a sweet smile and in a soft voice. "'All right,' he said. "'Let us leave it at that. Anyhow, we shall be rid of one of them.' "'I don't love niggers any more than you do,' she replied. "'and I suppose one mustn't be too particular "'where that sort of cleaning up is concerned.' "'Then she changed in voice and manner, and asked genially, "'And now tell me, am I forgiven?' "'You are, dear lady, if there is anything to forgive.' "'As he spoke, seeing that she had moved to go, "'he came to the door with her, "'and in the most natural way accompanied her downstairs. "'He passed through the hall with her and down the avenue.' As he went back to the house, she smiled to herself. "'Well, that is all right. I don't think the morning has been altogether thrown away.' And she walked slowly back to Diana's grove. Adam Salton followed the line of the brow, and refreshed his memory as to the various localities. He got home to Lesser Hill just as Sir Nathaniel was beginning lunch. Mr. Salton had gone to Walsall to keep an early appointment, so he was all alone. When the meal was over, seeing in Adam's face that he had something to speak about, he followed into the study and shut the door. When the two men had lighted their pipes, Sir Nathaniel began. "'I have remembered an interesting fact about Diana's Grove. There is, I have long understood, some strange mystery about that house. It may be of some interest, or it may be trivial, in such a tangled skein as we are trying to unravel.' "'Please, tell me all you know or suspect. "'To begin, then, of what sort is the mystery? "'Physical, mental, moral, historical, scientific, occult? "'Any kind of hint will help me.' "'Quite right. "'I shall try to tell you what I think, "'but I have not put my thoughts on the subject in sequence, "'so you must forgive me if due order is not observed in my narration. "'I suppose you have seen the house at Diana's Grove.' "'The outside of it?' but I have that in my mind's eye, and I can fit into my memory whatever you may mention. The house is very old. Probably the first house of some sort that stood there was in the time of the Romans. This was probably renewed, perhaps several times at later periods. The house stands, or rather, used to stand here, 
when Mercia was a kingdom. I do not suppose that the basement can be later than the Norman conquest. Some years ago, when I was president of the Mercian Archaeological Society, I went all over it very carefully. This was when it was purchased by Captain March. The house had then been done up, so as to be suitable for the bride. The basement is very strong, almost as strong and as heavy as if it had been intended as a fortress. There are a whole series of rooms deep underground. One of them in particular struck me. The room itself is of considerable size, but the masonry is more than massive. In the middle of the room is a sunk well, built up to floor level and evidently going deep underground. There is no windlass, nor any trace of there ever having been any, no rope, nothing. Now we know that the Romans had wells of immense depth, from which the water was lifted by the old rag rope, that at Woodhall used to be nearly a thousand feet. Here, then, we have simply an enormously deep well-hole. The door of the room was massive, and was fastened with a lock nearly a foot square. It was evidently intended for some kind of protection to someone or something. But no one in those days had ever heard of anyone having been allowed even to see the room. All this is apropos of a suggestion on my part that the well-hole was a way by which the white worm, whatever it was, went and came. At that time I would have had a search made, even excavation if necessary, at my own expense, but all suggestions were met with a prompt and explicit negative. So, of course, I took no further step in the matter. Then it died out of recollection, even of mine. "'Do you remember, sir?' asked Adam. "'What was the appearance of the room where the well-hole was? Was there furniture, in fact any sort of thing in the room?' The only thing I remember was a sort of green light, very clouded, very dim, which came up from the well. Not a fixed light, but intermittent and irregular, quite unlike anything I had ever seen. Do you remember how you got into the well-room? Was there a separate door from outside, or was there any interior room or passage which opened into it? I think there must have been some room with a way into it. I remember going up some steep steps— they must have been worn smooth by long use or something of the kind, for I could hardly keep my feet as I went up. Once I stumbled and nearly fell into the well-hole. Was there anything strange about the place? Any queer smell, for instance? Queer smell, yes, like bilge or a rank swamp. It was distinctly nauseating. When I came out, I felt as if I had just been going to be sick. I shall try back on my visit— and see if I can recall any more of what I saw or felt. Then perhaps, sir, later in the day, you will tell me anything you may chance to recollect. I shall be delighted, Adam. If your uncle has not returned by then, I'll join you in the study after dinner, and we can resume this interesting chat. End of chapter 16 This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen of the Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker, read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter Seventeen: The Mystery of the Grove. That afternoon, Adam decided to do a little exploring. As he passed through the wood outside the gate of Diana's Grove, he thought he saw the African's face for an instant. So he went deeper into the undergrowth and followed along parallel to the avenue to the house. 
He was glad that there was no workman or servant about, for he did not care that any of Lady Arabella's people should find him wandering around her grounds. Taking advantage of the denseness of the trees, he came close to the house and skirted round it. He was repaid for his trouble, for on the far side of the house, close to where the rocky frontage of the cliff fell away, he saw Ulanga crouched behind the irregular trunk of a great oak. The man was so intent on watching someone, or something, that he did not guard against being himself watched. This suited Adam, for he could thus make scrutiny at will. The thick wood, though the trees were mostly of small girth, threw a heavy shadow, so that the steep declension in front of which grew the tree behind which the African lurked, was almost in darkness. Adam drew as close as he could, and was amazed to see a patch of light on the ground before him. When he realized what it was, he was determined more than ever to follow on his quest. The nigger had a dark lantern in his hand, and was throwing the light down the steep incline. The glare showed a series of stone steps, which ended in a low-lying, heavy iron door fixed against the side of the house. All the strange things he had heard from Sir Nathaniel, and all those, little and big, which he had himself noticed, crowded into his mind in a chaotic way. Instinctively he took refuge behind a thick oak stem, and set himself down to watch what might occur. After a short time it became apparent that the African was trying to find out what was behind the heavy door. There was no way of looking in, for the door fitted tight into the massive stone slabs. The only opportunity for the entrance of light was through a small hole between the great stones above the door. This hole was too high up to look through from the ground level. Ulanga, having tried standing tiptoe on the highest point near, and holding the lantern as high as he could, threw the light round the edges of the door to see if he could find anywhere a hole or a flaw in the metal through which he could obtain a glimpse. Foiled in this, he brought from the shrubbery a plank, which he leant against the top of the door, and then climbed up with great dexterity. This did not bring him near enough to the window-hole to look in, or even to throw the light of the lantern through it, so he climbed down and carried the plank back to the place from which he had got it. Then he concealed himself near the iron door and waited, manifestly with the intent of remaining there till someone came near. Presently Lady Arabella, moving noiselessly through the shade, approached the door. When he saw her close enough to touch it, Ulanga stepped forward from his concealment, and spoke in a whisper, which through the gloom sounded like a hiss. "'I want to see you, Missy, soon and secret.' "'What do you want?' "'You know well, Missy, I told you already.' She turned on him with blazing eyes, the green tint in them glowing like emeralds. "'Come, none of that!' If there is anything sensible which you wish to say to me, you can see me here, just where we are, at seven o'clock. He made no reply in words, but putting the backs of his hands together, bent lower and lower till his forehead touched the earth. Then he rose and went slowly away. Adam Sultan, from his hiding-place, saw and wondered. In a few minutes he moved from his place and went home to Lesser Hill, fully determined that seven o'clock would find him in some hidden place behind Diana's grove. At a little before seven, Adam stole softly out of the house and took the back way to the rear of Diana's grove. The place seemed silent and deserted, 
so he took the opportunity of concealing himself near the spot whence he had seen Ulanga trying to investigate whatever was concealed behind the iron door. He waited, perfectly still, and at last he saw a gleam of white passing soundlessly through the undergrowth. He was not surprised when he recognized the color of Lady Arabella's dress. She came close and waited, with her face to the iron door. From some place of concealment near at hand, Ulanga appeared and came close to her. Adam noticed with surprised amusement that over his shoulder was the box with the mongoose. Of course, the African did not know that he was seen by anyone, least of all by the man whose property he had with him. Silent-footed as he was, Lady Arabella heard him coming, and turned to meet him. It was somewhat hard to see in the gloom, for, as usual, he was all in black, only his collar and cuffs showing white. Lady Arabella opened the conversation which ensued between the two. "'What do you want, to rob me or murder me?' "'No, to love you.' This frightened her a little, and she tried to change the tone. "'Is that a coffin you have with you? If so, you are wasting your time. It would not hold me.' When a nigger suspects he is being laughed at, all the ferocity of his nature comes to the front, and this man was of the lowest kind. "'Dis ain't no coffin for nobody. Dis box is for you. Something you love. Me give him to you.' Still anxious to keep off the subject of affection, on which she believed him to have become crazed, she made another effort to keep his mind elsewhere. "'Is this why you want to see me?' He nodded. "'Then come round to the other door, but be quiet. I have no desire to be seen so close to my own house in conversation with a—a—a a, a nigger like you.' She had chosen the word deliberately. She wished to meet his passion with another kind— such would, at all events, help to keep him quiet. In the deep gloom she could not see the anger which suffused his face. Rolling eyeballs and grinding teeth are, however, sufficient signs of anger to be decipherable in the dark. She moved round the corner of the house to her right. Ulanga was following her when she stopped him by raising her hand. "'No, not that door,' she said. "'That is not for niggers. The other door will do well enough for you.' Lady Arabella took in her hand a small key which hung at the end of her watch-chain, and moved to a small door, low down, round the corner, and a little downhill from the edge of the brow. Ulanga, in obedience to her gesture, went back to the iron door. Adam looked carefully at the mongoose-box as the African went by, and was glad to see that it was intact. Unconsciously, as he looked, he fingered the key that was in his waistcoat-pocket. When Ulanga was out of sight— Adam hurried after Lady Arabella. End of chapter 17. This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 of The Lair of the White Worm by Bram Stoker. Read for LibriVox.org by Betsy Bush. Chapter 18. Exit Ulanga. The woman turned sharply as Adam touched her shoulder. "'One moment whilst we are alone. You had better not trust that nigger,' he whispered. Her answer was crisp and concise. "'I don't. Forewarned is forearmed. Tell me if you will. It is for your own protection. Why do you mistrust him?' "'My friend, you have no idea of this man's impudence. Would you believe that he wants me to marry him?' 
No, said Adam incredulously, amused in spite of himself. Yes, and wanted to bribe me to do it by sharing a chest of treasure, at least he thought it was, stolen from Mr. Caswell. Why do you distrust him, Mr. Salton? Did you notice that box he had slung on his shoulder? That belongs to me. I left it in the gun-room when I went to lunch. He must have crept in and stolen it. Doubtless he thinks that it, too, is full of treasure. He does. How on earth do you know? asked Adam. A little while ago he offered to give it to me, another bribe to accept him. Fah! I am ashamed to tell you such a thing. The beast! Whilst they had been speaking she had opened the door, a narrow iron one, well hung, for it opened easily and closed tightly without any creaking or sound of any kind. Within all was dark, but she entered as freely and with as little misgiving or restraint as if it had been broad daylight. For Adam there was just sufficient green light from somewhere for him to see that there was a broad flight of heavy stone steps leading upward. But Lady Arabella, after shutting the door behind her, when it closed tightly without a clang, tripped up the steps lightly and swiftly. For an instant all was dark, but there came again the faint green light which enabled him to see the outlines of things. Another iron door, narrow like the first and fairly high, led into another large room, the walls of which were of massive stones, so closely joined together as to exhibit only one smooth surface. This presented the appearance of having at one time been polished. On the far side, also smooth like the walls, was the reverse of a wide, but not high, iron door. Here there was a little more light, for the high-up aperture over the door opened to the air. Lady Arabella took from her girdle another small key, which she inserted in a keyhole in the centre of a massive lock. The great bolt seemed wonderfully hung, for the moment the small key was turned, the bolts of the great lock moved noiselessly, and the iron doors swung open. On the stone steps outside stood Ilanga, with the mongoose box slung over his shoulder. Lady Arabella stood a little on one side, and the African, accepting the movement as an invitation, entered in an obsequious way. The moment, however, that he was inside, he gave a quick look around him. "'Much death here, much death, many deaths. Good, good!' He sniffed round as if he was enjoying the scent. The matter and manner of his speech were so revolting that instinctively Adam's hand wandered to his revolver, and with his finger on the trigger he rested satisfied that he was ready for any emergency. There was certainly opportunity for the nigger's enjoyment, for the open well-hole was almost under his nose, sending up such a stench as almost made Adam sick, though Lady Arabella seemed not to mind it at all. It was like nothing that Adam had ever met with. He compared it with all the noxious experiences he had ever had—the drainage of war-hospitals, of slaughter-houses, the refuse of dissecting-rooms. None of these was like it, though it had something of them all with, added, the sourness of chemical waste, and the poisonous effluvium of the bilge of a waterlogged ship, whereon a multitude of rats had been drowned. Then, quite unexpectedly, the negro noticed the presence of a third person, Adam Sultan. He pulled out a pistol and shot at him, happily missing. 
Adam was himself usually a quick shot, but this time his mind had been on something else, and he was not ready. However, he was quick to carry out an intention, and he was not a coward. In another moment both men were in grips. Beside them was the dark well-hole, with that horrid effluvium stealing up from its mysterious depths. Adam and Olonga both had pistols. Lady Arabella, who had not one, was probably the most ready of them all in the theory of shooting, but that being impossible, she made her effort in another way. Gliding forward, she tried to seize the African, but he eluded her grasp, just missing, a doing so falling into the mysterious hole. As he swayed back to firm foothold, he turned his own gun on her and shot. Instinctively Adam leaped at his assailant. Clutching at each other, they tottered on the very brink. Lady Arabella's anger was now fully awake, was all for Ulanga. She moved towards him with her hands extended, and had just seized him when the catch of the locked box, due to some movement from within, flew open and the King Cobra Killer flew at her with a venomous fury impossible to describe. As it seized her throat, she caught hold of it, and with a fury superior to its own, tore it in two just as if it had been a sheet of paper. The strength used for such an act must have been terrific. In an instant it seemed to spout blood and entrails, and was hurled into the well-hole. In another instant she had seized Ulanga, and with a swift rush had drawn him, her white arms encircling him, down with her into the gaping aperture. Adam saw a medley of green and red lights blaze in a whirling circle, and as it sank down into the well a pair of blazing green eyes became fixed, sank lower and lower with frightful rapidity, and disappeared, throwing upward the green light which grew more and more vivid every moment. As the light sank into the noisome depths, there came a shriek which chilled Adam's blood a prolonged agony of pain and terror which seemed to have no end. Adam Salton felt that he would never be able to free his mind from the memory of those dreadful moments, the gloom which surrounded that horrible carnal pit, which seemed to go down to the very bowels of the earth, conveyed from far down the sights and sounds of the nethermost hell, the ghastly fate of the African as he sank down to his terrible doom his black face growing gray with terror, his white eyeballs now like veined bloodstone, rolling in the helpless extremity of fear. The mysterious green light was in itself a milieu of horror, and through it all the awful cry came up from that fathomless pit, whose entrance was flooded with spots of fresh blood. Even the death of the fearless little snake-killer, so fierce, so frightful, as it stained with a ferocity which told of no living force above earth, but only of the devils of the pit, was only an incident. Adam was in a state of intellectual tumult, which had no parallel in his experience. He tried to rush away from the horrible place. Even the baleful green light, thrown up through the gloomy well-shaft, was dying away, as its source sank deeper into the primeval ooze. The darkness was closing in on him in overwhelming density, darkness in such a place and with such a memory of it. He made a wild rush forward, slipped on the steps in some sticky, acrid-smelling mass that felt and smelt like blood, and falling forward felt his way into the inner room, where the well-shaft was not. 
Then he rubbed his eyes in sheer amazement. Up the stone steps from the narrow door by which he had entered glided the white-clad figure of Lady Arabella, the only color to be seen on her being blood marks on her face and hands and throat. Otherwise she was calm and unruffled, as when earlier she stood aside for him to pass in through the narrow iron door. End of chapter 18 This recording is in the public domain. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.